Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another weekend episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. I am fresh off the completion of the audiobook for the next book, which I've teased a little bit. I won't tease too much more, but I was uh, joking on Instagram today that uh, I am now measuring the pandemic in how many audiobooks I've been forced to record at home. The the number is two. I did Lives of the Stoics here, uh, not in a studio, because last summer the surge was really bad. And this summer, uh, I am just recorded Courage is Calling. I'm vaccinated, but my two young kids are not, and I just didn't feel great going to a studio for three or four days. Plus, I liked being able to dip in and out, uh, just walk in the other room and do some recording, walk back to the other room and write, so it was much less disruptive, but it is an exhausting experience. Let me tell you, it does not come quickly or easily. You know, you get you can do maybe 20, 25 pages a day, and then you start just sounding like a blubbering idiot. It's not that your voice gives out. It's that your brain gives out, and all the words blur together. I think reading out loud must have been a skill that people had bef- you know, in decades and centuries previous that's atrophied you know these days the most I'll, I'll ever read out loud is like one kid's book to my kids or two kids books or you know one of the episodes for the for the podcast or whatever um you know the the, the daily email but you know 
rarely reading more than a few pages at a time. And so it was, it was quite an ordeal, but, but the, the, the core of it is done, just waiting for the pickups, uh, all the things that I got wrong, the things I mispronounced. Uh, I was patting myself on the back. There was less words in this one that I had to look up the pronunciation. Um, I think that's good. It means uh, I'm, I'm s- stripping down my writing using fewer thesaurus words and, and, and just being blunter and more to the point. Lives of the Stokes was such a pain because it just included so many different names. <laughs> Anyways, that is done. Uh, it was incredibly hot in here, as I mentioned before. Uh, we need a new air conditioner here at the Painted Porch, which uh, the quotes came in at like twenty to $40,000. So that's fun. Um, and even if it had been replaced, I probably would have had to turn it off because you can't have any background noise running. But uh, that's done. And now I can get back to work on the new book, which I am working on. In the meantime, I wanted to bring you a guest today who's writing I am a big fan of. I read it at The Atlantic. I don't know if I've ever talked about my reading habits. I try not to read a lot of news, but I do try to read news from people who are smart, who uh, help aggregate things, who give me context on things, and who often have sort of direct access to, let's call them newsmakers, if you will. Today's guest, Edward Isaac DeVere, over at the Atlantic is a person who's writing uh, I do that with. He is the author of a new book called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. It's a fascinating book about the 2020 campaign, all the different candidates, the egos, the dysfunction, the urgency, the near misses of it all. It's a fascinating book. I had a bunch of questions to ask him, but sorry, I distracted myself. What I was saying is my reading habits, I try not to read a lot of news. When I do read news, what I'll do is I'll see an article that I think is interesting and I save it to Instapaper, which I then read on my phone. And what I like about Instapaper is first off, it gets rid of all the ads, gets rid of all the distracting other articles that might suck you in like, oh, read this story or look at this thing or, you know, whatever. It's just, you're just reading it, no ads, just white text on a black background, stripped down. I find it a more conducive way to read. I used to do it when I was sort of on planes or something. Um, that's when I would catch up on stuff. But anyways, I've read him on Instapaper for a long time. That's how I try to read the news. I try not to read breaking news. I've always tried to be sort of low social media, but I'm in the midst of a Twitter detox, not even checking uh, my own stuff, uh, which has been healthy. Uh, We talk about that a little bit in the interview. This is a great chat. We talk about the soul of America. We talk about being courageous. We talk about fighting for what's right. We talk about discipline and patience, ignoring the noise, ignoring the chatter, and uh, what's at stake here uh, politically uh, in America. And uh, I do recommend the book. I I enjoyed it. I read it from cover to cover. Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Uh, I've got a sense we're going to carry this in the painted porch. And in fact, I'm going to send an email to my manager right now to make sure we do. And uh, enjoy this wonderful interview. And you can follow. I know I just said I'm in the middle of a Twitter detox. But you can follow Edward at Isaac Dover. That's I-S-A-A-C-D-O-V-E-R-E. 
Well, you uh, you came very highly recommended. I've read your stuff for a long time in the Atlantic, but anytime Arnold Schwarzenegger suggests uh, I have someone on, uh, that's a that's a <laughs> suggestion I'm going to take. Um, it's a weird thing with him. I mean, I met him originally because I did a podcast with him, and um, we. Uh, we developed a pretty good rapport, um, and he's he's a good person to know, which seems like ridiculous to say, but um, uh, I enjoy talking to him whenever I do. Uh, no, he is he is a great person. To, he is a great person to know. I was so I know his guy Daniel, and uh, I was yeah. in I was doing a talk in Austria, and uh, I was like, "Hey, I'm in Austria or something." And he's like, where are you in Austria? And I said, "Oh, I'm in Graz." That's where I was giving the talk. And he's oh, like, that's boy. where that's where Arnold is from. And he's like. Arnold needs you to meet this guy. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so this guy came to my hotel and uh, it was like his best friend from elementary school who was the head of some Austrian newspaper. And uh, he was like, I'm taking you out to dinner. He's like, any friend of Arnold is a friend of mine. He took us all around. And then uh, I had told him that my grandfather was from Slovenia. And he was like, all right, that's it. We're going to Slovenia right now. <laughs> And then he drove us to Slovenia. It was one of the one of the most memorable and also surreal mo- <laughs> moments of of, uh, of my life, actually. So again, when he suggested you, yeah, well, I, I, my I guess uh, <laughs> I've been to Graz too, and with him because we we did a the podcast we recorded was like uh, around this time. Uh, July of 2017 and he really liked it and I wrote uh, uh, an article off of it and he really liked that too and then uh, Kajal called me up and he was like Arnold says that you should come to Oktoberfest with him and I was like what? (laughs) And he said to me yeah and he's brought it up twice so I think he actually means it Um, and I said okay well why don't you like find out if that's real Um, and then also like is this like he wants like I should write another article about it like what's going on like what what work what's the frame that we're going in with Um, and and he said yeah he said you can you know he'll he'll do he'll talk whatever you want Um, and he's serious about it you should come and so I met him in uh, Spain um, and San Sebastian, where there was a film festival that he was promoting. And the article ended up being like, you know, the weird, I think we called it the strange political afterlife of Arnold Schwarzenegger and like how he was staying involved in things despite not being in office anymore and like the things he cared about. So it was this movie that he had narrated about um, underwater, like under uh, deep sea stuff that was about the environmental causes. And then we flew to Munich to go to Oktoberfest, um, which was weird. Um, (laughs) um, I think Oktoberfest is probably weird anyway, but my only experience of it is walking around with him, uh, including when he got up to conduct the band at one point and pulled me in so that I would conduct the band. Um, And he put his hand, you know, his Arnold Schwarzenegger hand on my wrist and pulled me in. And of course, like... (laughs) Even if I wasn't overwhelmed with surprise about what was happening, he's still quite strong. Uh, and then, like, and we just spent like a lot of time together with that. And and then uh, the next, the uh, two days afterwards, what was going to be my last full day in Munich, um, I, I I got a text from Ketchel and he was like, Arnold wants to take you to his museum. And I said, 
you know, I'd done enough of my own background research that I knew that that was in Graz and we were in Munich. And I was like, I don't understand what that means. And he said, it means that he's got his assistant finding a charter plane for us and we're flying to Graz tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> and, and I ended up getting a tour of the Arnold Schwarzenegger Museum from Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it's in the house that he grew up in. So, like, he's like, oh, yeah, this is where uh, the bathroom was. And uh, we, you know, there was no plumbing. And, you know, like, all this stuff. And it's just so crazy and weird. And maybe, like, even the weirdest part of walking around in there is there was someone who was visiting the Arnold Schwarzenegger Museum who didn't recognize him when he walked by. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you've made the trek to the Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. Museum, like, wouldn't you realize that that was him? <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then we, like, went around Graz a little bit and, uh, and then flew back to Munich and trying to explain uh, both to, like, my editor and to my wife and like, like what had happened was really hard. <laughs> no, as a, as a writer, you, you do have this sort of weird, you're because you're, you're adjacent to sort of powerful, interesting people who are doing things on a whim that, that seem very self-indulgent that like you kind of have to follow or attend as part of your job, but it's, it's fun for you. But it's, it's, I remember a couple of years ago going to my wife and like, um, yeah, this NBA team wants me to go to Las Vegas for the summer league, you know? And she's like, are you, like, you know, and it's like, I don't want to go, but I also want to go, right? It's not something I would have asked to do, but it feels bad not going, you know? And so, yeah, you end up being like, no, no, sorry. I, I, I need you to take care of the kids for a couple of days because I need to go to Oktoberfest with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my, my wife has... Um... She, someone, I remember someone, a politician said to me uh, on the campaign trail at one point, um, uh, like two years ago, she, she's an elected official herself, right? And she was like, so is your wife uh, appreciative of all the work you're doing being away this much? And I was like, appreciative is not, the I would say supportive. No, she's supportive. Like, she thinks it's good, and I'm doing good work, whatever, and she's knew what I, I was doing this work when we met each other. Like, um, but I don't think appreciative is exactly the right. <laughs> well, I, I had a moment in Graz that sort of reminded me of your book and, and the title of the book, of course. So my, my grandfather was from Sylvania, but, but he actually ended up in Graz during the war as a displaced person. So basically a refugee. He wasn't Jewish, but mm-hmm. just the destruction of the war, he ends up sure. in this, this refugee camp. And I went and visited it. It's, it's like an apartment complex now or something. But, but so when I saw that, that speech that Arnold gave after the election about mm-hmm. the sort of Nazi collaborators and, and the sort of, uh, uh, the people that had gotten caught up in this whole thing and the wreckage of that, it really hit me because it was like, oh yeah, he would have been around after this happened. They never would have touched past, but they, he would have seen the wreckage of this whole thing. Yeah. And this idea of of sort of battling for the soul of a country or a culture or a continent, it, it's not uh, it's not really an understatement. I mean, the, that kind of, that is the stakes of what we're talking about. I know every mm-hmm. politician makes their campaign a sort of a moral crusade but there was something different about this cycle that you covered here when i was sitting setting out to write this book and uh, and i signed the contract 
in July of 2018, the, the proposal says, like, this is going to be the craziest election ever um, and a really definitive one uh, for the history of uh, this country, maybe the most important one. And I didn't know, obviously, all the things that would end up stacking up. But, like, this is something that is deeper than the basics of politics that's going on. It's about, it's not about Republicans versus Democrats or like what kind of tax policy do you favor? It's like, this is bigger. This is what kind of country are we? What, what, what kind of spirit do we have of the country? And you can be uh, someone who buys into the Trump vision, or you can be someone who buys into the Biden vision of it, or some of the other visions that are out there. Obviously, those are the two most prominent. Uh, but we're figuring it out. And it's like, uh, is this the adolescence of America? Is it the midlife crisis of America? Is it the, the slow decline into dementia of America? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but it seems like it's one of those, right? Uh, and I remember uh, right before uh, Trump was inaugurated, having a conversation with uh, an, an editor then who said to me, is this election, is this presidency going to be, he said to like assign odds to this, uh, that this is the beginning of the fall of the empire, you know, the, the end of Rome, or is it like you go to the doctor and you get uh, a checkup and you realize you have to have like a real correction to how you do things. And that's not necessarily to say that Trump inherently was a bad thing, but it was, but Trump being elected was definitely a check on how everything was running and people saying like, we don't like what's coming. We don't like how this has been operated. Uh, you go back to the, the first debate that Clinton and Trump had and she was going at him and saying like, you, uh, got a sweet deal on your taxes. You use Chinese steel and now, and how could you say all those things and do all those things and, and say that now you want to improve the country. And Trump said, well, I, I was playing by the rules that were there and you were the one who was there in power for all that time. If you wanted to change the rules, then why don't you change them? Why should we believe that you're going to change them now? And that was sort of the fundamental thing. You know, Clinton as the, the, the way that things were and saying, we can tweak it and improve it and refurbish it and go forward. Or Trump saying, like, blow it all up. Change again uh, in, in a bigger way than you've ever changed. Uh, and you know, some of the reporting that I have in my book is of uh, these focus groups that were uh, done uh, that Obama actually asked to have uh, conducted of the, uh, the fabled Obama-Trump voters, these people who voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 and then for Trump in 2016. And people say, how could these people exist? And they go to Iowa and the people say to them, uh, to the, the, the focus group uh, organizers, they say, listen, what we voted for Obama because we thought everything needed to change. And then uh, Washington wouldn't let him change and they stopped him at every turn. And so now we need something that's much more aggressive and uh, explosive in making the change because we really want that change to come. Yeah, before we get to, to 20... Uh to, to, to the 2020 election, it, it was what I kept feeling in your book. What, what, what struck me is like how, how people who are ostensibly like world-class at what they do, like running campaigns, <laughs> being politicians 
are not really that good at it, right? There's sort of a, a bumbling Veep quality to a lot of uh, a lot of the different campaigns you profile. And in retrospect, it seems so amazing that Hillary's campaign, with all its consultants and all of its data and all of its money, essentially boiled like she she obviously knew that she's not particularly well liked, right? And yet right. she ran a campaign that basically was I'm Hillary Clinton vote for me, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> like she took she took the her her main detriment as a person and made that the forefront of her campaign and then was surprised at the referendum that people would pick such another that that, that some people would pick anyone but her when pretty much they'd been quite loud and vocal about the fact that they wanted anyone but her. Yeah, there's a, a moment that I describe in the book early out of uh, a couple days before the election in 2016. I was sitting in a diner in Brooklyn, a couple blocks from campaign headquarters with a few of the top Clinton uh, uh, aides. And one of them said to me, we realized this was going to be a change election and she could never be the change candidate. So we decided to change the question. And I was like, I, I remember thinking, <laughs> put this in the book, like, it's great. Did you win the meeting when you yeah. like, said that? You was played it, yourself. But, right? Like, great. I'm sure everybody thought that was really smart, um, but like, it clearly didn't work. Right. Uh, and uh, I mean, to your point, right, we I think the mistake that gets made uh, somewhat uh, inadvertently often in, in writing about politics and, and uh, in a lot of campaign books is you drum up these people as the, the, the campaign managers and press as these great geniuses who've got it all figured out and, and <laughs> thought it through. And, you know, they, some of them are really good at what they do and some of them get lucky in good ways or bad ways for them. And some of them are not so good at what they do. And you don't have often these like movie moments where like the decision real like in that moment in that meeting it was the that conversation which changed everything um and which led to the uh the downfall of the candidate or led to the amazing victory of it and i try in this book to give you a real look at at how this works and how the candidates uh are sometimes very good at what they're doing and sometimes just very bad at what they're doing and sometimes are just like fools and make mistakes <laughs> and, and say something stupid that gets them in trouble and leads to uh, other things going wrong or they're uh, someone who works for them does or something gets blown out of proportion uh, and uh, and takes on a life of its own that the candidate can't ever quite get away from. And that can be anything from Hillary Clinton and saying the that basket of deplorables line, which was just sort of like a throwaway comment that she'd said a bunch of times, but caught in that moment and made. And in, in retrospect, was, uh, entirely correct. I mean, well, she she was saying something that that again she'd said it a lot, and that a lot of people uh, agreed with then. And certainly, when you look at you know folks who stormed the Capitol. Um, supporting Donald Trump. And this is not about Trump supporters overall, but I would say anybody who tried to uh, <laughs> invade the capital of the United States, uh, knocking over police officers, saying that they were going to hang Mike Pence uh, and like kill Nancy Pelosi and chasing others around the capital. Those are deplorable people. They are. <laughs> um, and 
and and I think as a country we should condemn them and we should condemn anybody who's engaged in any kind of uh, violence like that but you don't want to get into this complete equivocation of things that's those people those however many thousands of people was those are people who are particularly troublesome because no matter what else has whatever other protests have happened nobody else has done that and that really was and i know we're jumping ahead not just past 2020 but to the aftermath of 2020 but that's like the moment that i think uh, should make us all realize that this isn't just something that's happening on Facebook or, you know, it's just like the political conversation. This is real things that, that are are sure. blowing up uh, and and making people uh, and should make people think differently about how we've gotten to this path. Uh, you know, I'll just throw in one story from uh, before we come off this, but there's a, a woman, uh, her, her name is Lisa Blunt Rochester. She's uh, the congresswoman from Delaware. She's a black woman, friend of Joe Biden, because everybody in Delaware is a friend of Joe Biden. And she is in the, the gallery of the House chamber when the rioters get there. Uh, they never get in the chamber, but she thinks they're going to get in. She starts praying, thinking she's going to die. Uh, um, and as she's being escorted out of the chamber, she takes that pin that all members of Congress have that identify them as members off of her uh, jacket because she thinks they're going to come and kill me as a member of Congress, maybe. Sure. And I don't want, but she doesn't want to put it away in her pocket because she thinks, well, like if I'm just a black woman walking around the Capitol, will I get protected? I might have to show this to get protected. Um, and so she decides to keep it in her clenched fist so that she can show it quickly if anybody asks. That's like a really crazy thing to think about, that that was a, an active that a woman uh, walking around in 2021 in America had to think. Seven like, months well, this, ago. Right, not, not <laughs> that like either I'm gonna be killed because I'm identified as a member of the government, or I might not be protected because I'm just a black woman walking around. That's bad. That's really bad. <laughs> um, and we have to reckon with what that all means. No, I, I think that's right. And and actually, it, it, weirdly, it's more related to the the sort of win the meeting thing that you were just talking about, because the, the other moment that struck me in 2016 that was related to that was, you know, sort of Hillary's response to make America great again, which is an incorrect slogan, but let's say a sort of rhetorically brilliant one. You know, she, she responds, America is great because it is good. And it's like, as a writer, I get the play on words there. But as a human being, like I'm also any four year old would tell you that great is better than good. Right. And 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 so like there is this element of sort of like fencing in the mirror, arguing over these ridiculous like little things, winning the meeting, winning the cycle on Twitter and. And you contrast that with the stakes, you know, sort of people storming the Capitol or or what have you. It, it does feel like as urgent as the election was, and you talk about in the book, there was also just this like uh, delusional sense of priorities and unlimited time, and uh, you know that 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 all the candidates seemed to have. I was I was just sort of struck by like fiddling as the as as Rome burned kind of thing as as some of these candidates were battling it out over this nonsense. Yeah, and uh, there were a lot of moments of nonsense in the campaign. I think the the weird thing about 
our current situation uh, is that we have this larger battle for the soul, uh, this existential crisis that America is going through. And the only way to sort it out is like through presidential primaries and house elections. And right? that's how we play it out through our political process. And it feels sort of lacking um, to yeah. have th- that be the only way that we can do it. Uh, and that like I had to spend uh, cumulatively probably six weeks plus of my life in Iowa running around uh, to these events where, and no offense to the people in Iowa, but what I would hear all the time from Iowa voters and sort of famous is like, yeah, I, I would say like, what do you think of that candidate? Say, well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I've met him uh, three or four times. I got to see him a couple more times and see something else. I was like, what? How is it this hard to make a decision? But it's right. it's sort of like going into the cereal aisle and having forty different varieties of cereal, and you can stand there for a long time and think like, oh, should I get the checks or the life or the whatever, uh, <laughs> or 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 uh, the the honey crisps or the Lucky Charms, right? Like it, 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 people when they're given too many choices, uh, or and there were, I think you can fairly say there were too many choices. There were twenty six candidates uh, in the primaries for the Democrats in twenty twenty. Uh, they get frozen and and not being able to figure out uh, which ones to take. Got a quick message from one of our sponsors here, and then we'll get right back to the show. Stay tuned. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch, must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter, just like a couple weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's code Daily Stoic. Order using DoorDash today for eligible users only. Terms apply. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Yeah, and when, when you think about 26 candidates, that was something else that struck me in the book. You had this line, I forget who, who you were quoting, but they said something like, you know, the campaign's a bitch and then you have to be president, meaning that, <laughs> that it's super hard and then it's actually not like a fun job, right? Like, right. Especially, especially now. Um, and, and what struck me was how many people kept throwing their hats in the ring for a job that, one, they probably didn't want, Two, that they they had no real possibility of actually getting. But three, if they had any shred of self-awareness, were woefully unqualified for. So what is it? What is it that like what is it that attracts these people on both ends of the party? Is it is it that they don't actually want to win and they just want the the indirect benefits of coming close? Is it that they they actually have no self-awareness? Is it ego? It, it, what 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 is draw like when I when I look at the candidates on both sides, I am reminded of Trump's line about how they're not sending their best. Like this is not <laughs> the best of anyone, anyone on any side of the ideological spectrum. We are not. We are. These are not the, the best Americans. What, what is, so what is attracting 26 candidates to this primary? I, I mean, I think it's all of those things. I think it's uh, also some people see it as a way to advance their political careers. Uh, you know, if you are a low level, not well regarded, not well known politician, that's it, a good way to get people to write more about you or get on TV more. Uh, it's sometimes there is a financial uh, pull to it. I, I remember I wrote something in 2012, I believe, about, yeah, it would have been then, about the Republican primaries uh, and how many people seem to be getting in it and then signing book deals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, and then it becomes this, the, the book tour is the presidential campaign for some folks. Uh, that, it, it's a weird thing. And we, we have only, I think, in America, and I'm not an expert on uh, politics all over the world, is it this thing where people start becoming prominent and then we start to say, oh, you should run for president, right? Like, that mm-hmm. doesn't happen uh, in a lot of other countries. Right? Uh, and, and obviously that's what led to Donald Trump running for president. Uh, he was well-known and people say, oh, you should run. He said, okay, I should run, right? And uh, <laughs> uh, But you know, I've, I've written in my life uh, a story about whether Oprah would, would run for president. Why would we think that someone who has a talk show and is a successful, uh, one of the most successful, obviously, in the history of the world, uh, entrepreneurs and uh, of and changing communications and all that. Like, why is the next step to run for president, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and it's just there in our psyches that that's somehow like the pinnacle of achievement, even though – you know, it's a tough job, and it's not a job that I think uh, a lot of people would actually enjoy. Obama had this line where he would say uh, that every decision that would come to him was like an impossible decision because yeah. if somebody else could have solved it, it wouldn't have gotten to him. And so you're every day presented as president with things where it's like th- none of these are good options, but you have to pick which uh, which bowl of shit you feel like eating. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's always been the the problem of leadership, and uh, and and so there is this weird uh, paradox where like the person who is so egotistical as to think, 
oh, I could do a great job at that, or I was destined for that, is ironically often the person who lacks the humility and dedication and work ethic to actually do the job. I think um, the Wall Street Journal had a great piece uh, about like the the Eisenhower paradox or whatever. The, the idea that actually you want the leaders who don't really want to be the leader, you know, um, you want the reluctant uh, president. Right. And, and there was, I think when you look at the Democratic candidates uh, in, in the 2020 election, there was a thirstiness to all of them <laughs> that was pretty unbecoming and, and one might say uh, inherently unqualifying for, for the vast majority of them, you know, Beto well, O'Rourke but, being you know, <laughs> someone in Texas being the, the sort of prime example of that to me, someone who not only isn't qualified to be president, but does untold damage to himself, his state and the field <laughs> in running for president. But and and of course, like he he's a good example of like uh, why, why was he qualified to run? Because people were really he excited lost about another his, race. Well, but and people were really excited about his yeah. Senate candidacy, and he and so people thought, oh, you could get people excited. Hmm, that's interesting. That's something different. And look, one of the people who thought that that was an intriguing possibility was Barack Obama, right? Mm-hmm. So True. Uh, a lot of people were into it. I think the flip side of what you're saying is. Uh, it, Everybody runs for president these days, no matter who they are, what they believe in, is an egomaniac. Because now you have to be putting yourself forward and say, like, yeah, I think I should be the most powerful person in the world, right? That yeah. is inherently an egomaniacal decision. You have to find the balance, it seems, between the person who is an egomaniac uh, but isn't overblown with being an egomaniac because you want someone as president who is going to be ready to make hard decisions and say, yeah, this is what we're doing and feel strong about it. And you do see that voters respond to folks who have that feeling. When George W. Bush said, I'm the decider, he got made fun of a lot for it. But that uh, is the job. That's the job, right? right. Um, and and then he said it in a way that was kind of weird, and that's part of why he was mocked for it. But the president is the decider, and you don't want someone who is not going to be able to make a decision and feel ready to stick by it, uh, because these are hard decisions, and often they're, they are literally life and death decisions. And when they're not literally life decisions, then they are figuratively life and death decisions. Yeah, you could you could argue that. I'm the decider is just a less eloquent way of uh, expressing Harry Truman's idea of the buck stops here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting when you think about like sort of why someone's running for president. And my experience with some of the politicians that I've gotten to meet through writing my books and stuff, and what I found so discouraging about Washington is you have all these people sort of running with. And then, then they get the office. The, you, at the end of your book, you talk about the dog that catches the bus, mm-hmm. um, and, and which I think is a great expression, actually, for a lot of these people <laughs> who win office. It's actually weirdly not probably apt for Biden. It's, so it's ironic that he would say that because he was well, <laughs> preparing for it his entire life. Like It's you know. true, but the context of what happens there is that I, he was saying to – I said to him that we were – it's an interview that we did at the beginning of February and he has been president for about 10, 12 days at that point. And I said to him, so 
you know, sort of chit-chat at the beginning. How does it feel to be in the Oval Office every day and to be waking up upstairs? And he says, well, you know, the Oval, I was here a lot over the years. I was here almost every day when I was vice president. So that's familiar to me. Uh, but waking up upstairs, you know, like sometimes I can't find my clothes, man. And he was sort of joking around. And I, being a smart ass, said, well, you're the one who wanted this job. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, it sort of does capture a lot of what's in the book. Like, why did anybody want this job? Exactly. Um, And he says to me, uh, yeah, you know, a friend of mine said to me, uh, you're the dog that caught the car, and I said, "No, I'm the dog that caught the bus." Uh, and like, and what that was getting at, I think, is also sketched out in the book of how he, this presidency that he has, the huge pile of problems that he has to deal with, is so different from what he thought he was getting into when he jumped into the race. He yeah. saw himself as uh, that. Uh, after Charlottesville, the kind of challenge to the fabric of America was so deep that he that you just needed to get Trump out of the way and that he was running basically as the, the safest, surest bet to get Trump out of the way. Uh, and certainly a lot of voters respond to that. What he did not anticipate was that he would have all of these crises of uh, the public health, of the economy, of uh, race relations, of democracy that are there, and that he would uh, have both the obligation and the opportunity to do something about it. Uh, you know, I think uh, in the middle of the interview, he pointed out the portrait of FDR that he has hanging over the fireplace in the Oval Office in that prime spot. That's how he sees himself now. I think that if he had been honest with himself in 2019 when he got into the race, he probably would have put like Harry Truman up there as yeah. the continuation of something. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and instead now he's seeing himself as not just a function of Obama or a function of Trump, but no, he's going to be a big transformative president. Now, whether he actually gets to be that person we are going to see over the next couple of weeks and months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that was sort of my point is that, so you, you, you meet these people who they've caught the car, they caught the bus, and then they're like surprised that the job involves hard, unpleasant decisions or that they, they would have to risk what they just earned to, to, in order to enact this legislation or to stop this bad thing from happening. You know, it's sort of like, it's like, look, guys, there's and, and women. So I'm just saying to all of them, but it's like there was like a million ways you could have made money. There was like a million ways you could have become famous. There's a million things you could do that are more fun and easier than this. You chose politics and then you're like surprised that politics is requiring you to do something other than pursue your self-interest at any moment. You know, like I got this sense when I would talk to these different politicians that they're like, well, why should I put my ass on the line? You know, to, to, if I, I remember them saying something to me, like, uh, I was like, well, why don't you do this? Right. Some, you know, about some Trump thing they were telling me they disagreed with. And they were like, well, I don't want to be Bob Corker, you know, and, and who, or, 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 um, uh, Jeff Flake. And it's like, then you pick the wrong line of work. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you know what I mean? You d- you didn't decide to become a regional business executive or a social media influencer. You're one of a hundred people in the Senate. Like, how is this? How is this hard for you to wrap your head around? But it really does feel like there is a a, a misunderstanding about what the job of a politician is. 
Yeah. No, it would be like if you, if you uh, woke up one morning and you're like, I mean, do I really have to talk to people for this podcast? Like that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, you don't have to do a podcast. I don't think you're <laughs> like legally required to. Uh, but it, it's the job you signed up for. And, it, right. and, and uh, the way that unfortunately – uh, too many politicians, and I, I think one of the frustrations that I have had over the course of Trump's rise is uh, hearing Republican uh, politicians, Republican elected officials who say to me, like, off the record or privately, like, oh, I don't agree with anything that we're doing, uh, but I can't say it or I'm not going to say it. Or, uh, and that, I think if you agree with what Trump is doing, that's great. Like, you know, like, fine, go and say that you agree with it. Yeah. There are a lot of Republicans who do, right? Um, but if you don't and you say, like, oh, I can't really say it, like, what are you doing? Yes. What what's what's the point of uh, having this job? You were elected to have to take positions and not always comfortable positions. And, and you know, politicians always want to avoid having an unpopular opinion or an unpopular position. Sure, but you know, when we're in this big moment for the country, and no one who's paying attention would deny that we we are. Then this is you're called to to have a, a big opinion on things, and that goes not just for Republicans. Um, it goes for Democrats too. But I, I will tell you that it is much more rare <laughs> uh, to hear Democrats say off the record, "Well, I can't stand anything Biden is doing, but I can't say anything about it." And some of that is just like the Democratic mentality, because Democrats just sound off all the time whenever they are frustrated about anything. Uh, but I, it's a confusing thing to to cover and and I to to watch people who have you know yes I'm a, a reporter who's based in Washington which means that I do have like private dinners with politicians sometimes and um, and that I guess makes me part of whatever the insiders or the swamper but sometimes you watch people who ha- who say something over a dinner table to you and then say the exact opposite thing in public yes and and how and then they you know sometimes those same people will complain like oh you reporters are so cynical and we say you make us cynical when you do things yeah. like that well, that's no, I, your fault <laughs> I, I was i was at a dinner and I, probably one of those sort of half private half public dinners a few uh, months ago and uh and Nikki Haley was there uh and she was like the sort of guest or whatever and she was talking mm-hmm. and and i'm saying this so my my listeners don't think i'm just some sort of extreme leftist cuz i'm not i i was perfectly inclined to like Nikki Haley and uh certainly better like her better than than many other people but you know she was she was talking about you know that it's inappropriate that these social networking platforms are banning people and blah, 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 blah. And I remember saying something like, look, why do you do? I was like, do you think Facebook wants to be in the business of censoring politicians? The, The reason they're doing it is because their employees are making them do it. And the reason their employees are making Mark Zuckerberg do it is because the employees feel impotent to make their politicians, that is you, Nikki Haley, or anyone else in Washington or or within the party infrastructure, do what needs to be done. Like the reason this escalated and escalated and escalated to the point where there was an attempted coup and insurrection is because at every step of the way, 
exactly along the lines of what you're talking about, people thought one thing in private, but mm-hmm. did another thing in public, refused to put their butt on the line in even the smallest way, which created, you know, the the, the monster that we dealt with. So it, it's this weird thing where you see these politicians who, again, will give everything and try so hard to get elected, but then don't actually seem to want to do the job once they have it. It's this, it's the strange, as if, as if it's somebody else's job, like somebody one position higher than them. It's like, you were the ambassador to the United Nations. You know, you, you had no (laughs) ability to influence the behavior of this person in any way. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, it's so it's it's very strange, the sort of complete dereliction of duty coupled with the sort of like hand wringing about where things are going. Yeah, it's and this is not just about politics. I think the, the probably clearest uh parallel is in the media world um, where you have media executives who say like, well, what do you want us to do? People want more Mm -hmm. coverage of the Kardashians or whatever, you know, and we all have a role to, if you're taking a position, a public position, right? And I think anybody in journalism takes uh, a somewhat public position. Anybody in politics is obviously taking a public position uh, where part, it's part of like the, the implicit trust that, consumers and voters have and all of us to say like we want you to be a little responsible about what you're doing and to think through it a little bit more and we trust basically that you will uh and you have to take that and be responsive to people want what people want i don't think that like if i thought that the most interesting thing to write about was uh i'm trying to think of something like really boring like uh, <laughs> um, uh dry cleaner prices or <laughs> something right like uh, it it's not if I say to you, like, this is really what's changing the world, is whether you can get your shirts done for under $3, like, how many articles should I write about that if nobody is reading them? Probably not another, right? Um, yeah. But on the other hand, you don't want it to just be like, oh, we're chasing the lowest common denominator all the time, right? And politicians, it's the same thing. You want there to be this balance between being responsive, but also being uh, responsible and having a sense of uh, of the trust that the public has put in you. Yeah, I think there's a Solzhenitsyn quote where he says, you know, let evil into the world, but not through me. You know, I think <laughs> there, there we do have this tendency. It's a good, as Ameri- that's a good Russian quote. <laughs> <laughs> We, we have this, uh, you know, tendency to be like, why aren't these politicians, you know, standing up doing what's not in their interest, but in the larger interest? And then, yeah, you have a journalist chasing clicks or, or like it, I, I do think the imperative when you look at what these people do is to go, OK, obviously, as a voter, I have a minuscule impact. I have to make sure I use that impact. But also the lesson is, well, like, how am I being courageous or working for the collective common good? in my own industry. I have a friend who is sort of like aghast at like Jeff Bezos and this space thing, you know, he's like posting about it all the time. And it's like, but you work as a salesperson for a different tech billionaire, (laughs) you know, and you have a very nice life, you know? So, so there is this tendency where we want to, we want to question the morals and the purity of other people and then see ourselves kind of is exempt from having to, live up to our own ideals in any way in our own lives. Yeah. And like, I, I think that whatever 
one's own opinion is of Donald Trump and his politics. What his election and his presidency did, or should have done for, for more people, but I think did for a lot of people, is make us all feel like this stuff matters. Like politics matters, like and that we should have a role in it. And even if your role is just to be a voter, but like to be engaged enough to care about what's happening, and in a somewhat poetic way, the pandemic reinforces that that we are connected to each other. That like getting vaccinated or whatever is not just about you; is about how we all have a role in things. Anything about climate change, you know, if if you stop driving your uh, SUV, does that make much of an impact yourself? No, but if we all stop doing, you know, if we all think about these things, there, sure. there does need to be an investment that each of us has in what's going on. And I do think that that's much more alive now than it was pre-2016. The question now becomes, what do we all do with that? Because, uh, you know, I wrote this whole book about these four years uh, uh, for the Democrats and the Trump years. It's not like the book is like, okay, that's the end of the story. We all sorted it out. It's clear what happens now. Uh, It is a continuing story that uh, and it is a continuing struggle that we are all going through to to figure out what what we're going to be on the other side of however long a period this is. Got a quick message from one of our sponsors here, and then we'll get right back to the show. Stay tuned. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Well, speaking of these tech platforms, I have this theory that one of the most toxic forces in our culture, it's not social media per se, but it's how social media influence other forms of culture. So I think when you look at like journalists as a class or as a profession, 
that w- was long a profession that prized sort of thinking in long form, you know, the, the, the sort of artificial idea of objectivity, um, you know, the idea of sort of getting the whole story, putting it out there, the sort of definitive take on it, right? Serving the customer, speaking truth to power, so on and so forth. Um, now you contrast that with the incentives of Twitter, you know, of 240 characters, the, the hotter, the faster the take, the better, you have it has this compounding effect of like if 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 journalists are how the public comes to understand the world and how journalists are understanding the world is being affected by this technological uh you know innovation you you sort of get this weird magnified change in society you know um neil postman talks about how the dominant cultural medium sort of determines the culture itself I was just amazed at how often in the book, like Twitter's coming up over and over again, either as people trying to take a viewpoint from Twitter and like form a candidate around it, or, you know, conversely, often the people in Biden's campaign being like, guys, this is not reality. Nobody cares what these people think. (laughs) That tension struck me. And I, I just wondered what you thought, both as a reporter during the election, but then also a reporter who has to operate on this platform and watches it affect your colleagues. Like, what, wh- How do you think about that? It's really hard. And I, the, part of the thing that is going on is that it's not like no anybody has experience in what to do here yeah. or that there have been rules that have been so. So we're like figuring out, uh, figuring it out in real time as we uh, screw it up <laughs> and maybe do it well at certain points. Um, but most of the time, screw it up. I, <clears throat> I think that part of what came from 2016 uh, for a lot of people was this question of like, are we living in bubbles, right? And there was that famous SNL uh, like commercial of uh, being in a bubble that ran uh, like a week or two after the election in 2016. Twitter is a bubble in itself and a way where like reporters are talking to each other yeah, only, right? Uh, a lot of the time. And like, I, I've covered a lot of things as a reporter in a lot of different places. And the reporters are often, there's like the area for the reporters and the tables where the computers can be set up or the little pen where they can stand. And they end up talking to each other and ta- you know, making little jokes about what's going on um, or sharing some insight back and forth. And now most of that that you would see not at all public is happening in public view but with, as you say, like this weird incentive structure where like if you can say something that's like particularly uh, snarky or particularly sharp in how you say it or, or that really slams someone, then then you can get a lot of likes or retweets or whatever. The, the revelation that I had uh, over the course of a couple of years was that like it, it is – performance art that doesn't actually go that far, right? That uh, that it's, uh, it, you can shape what other reporters are thinking about or like have a conversation back and forth. And that can sometimes lead to things. Um, there are times where I've tweeted something about an event and used it a little bit as a immediate test to see whether that idea has mileage or what kind of responses come to it and then translate that into an article. Uh, but usually you can spend a lot of time 
uh, on Twitter, and I think that one tweet I did got like sixty thousand likes or retweets, and I remember which. And that is by far the most successful thing that I've ever tweeted. Um, and most of the time, it's like, oh, you got like forty people retweeted it. Like, great, yeah. you know. Like, what's the actual advantage of this? Not all that much. Um, and the downside of screwing something up and uh, seeming like you've gone too far is pretty high. Uh, and yeah. th- so the incentive becomes like making sure that you're on the radar for other people in journalism politics, which is a pretty small insular uh, group. And, and it, and that in itself is not always, uh, in fact, I would say it's most of the time, not very helpful. And I say that as somebody who tweets multiple times a day, nonetheless. Yeah. You'd, you'd almost have thought there'd be some empathy between the media and Trump in the sense of like, it it was like, why is he always tweeting? Says person who is always (laughs) tweeting, you know, like there, there does seem to be this compulsion and it's, it's really the weakest, it's really the most, the worst way to do it. Right. The Stoics talk about sort of taking every impression, putting it to the test, really thinking about it. But what Twitter and Facebook and all these social platforms are, they're like, give me your opinion and then think about it. You know, like, give me your opinion and then let's think, let's see what other people think about it. As opposed to, I'm going to, I'm going to go off for a minute and work through this. Right. And, and so it's like, if, if journalists are supposed to be the filter, the people who sort of separate fact from fiction, emotion from, you know, reality, it's really not good to have them be in constant sort of provoke, react, provoke, react mode um, all the time. You, I mean, I'd prefer that, that you guys go off, really think about something or, or be reading a book from 100 years ago about presidential campaigns and right. then being able to contextualize what's happening as opposed to, yeah, monitoring how many retweets something gets. Yeah, look, I was an English and a philosophy major in college. Uh, I, I don't think that many philosophers and certainly uh, <laughs> any Stoic would uh, do well on Twitter. <laughs> it's, it's not it, it, it's not the way that things uh, uh, <laughs> usually get processed when there's a lot of thinking to go on. On the other hand, I'm remembering as I say this uh, when I was taking a class on. Uh, the critique of pure reason and my professor was trying to explain a section to us and he said this section is really badly written and this is where you see that if uh, Kant had had graduate students who were working with him that they would have said to him Professor Kant uh, we need to clear this up and he said like don't struggle about I I don't remember exactly which section it was but he he was trying to explain to us like there's not like deeper meaning to be gleaned from this he was just saying like it's badly written (laughs) Well, yeah, like when you read Kierkegaard, you you think it's this like, yeah, a philosopher like any of the others. And then you're like, no, this guy was writing like angry letters uh, under a pseudonym <laughs> to the local newspaper for daring to gossip about him. And you're like, oh, it kind of is the same personality, just, <laughs> you know, like for thousands of years, just like the, in in the same way that egotistical people are attracted to politics, like it would be very unself-aware to, to imply that those of us who become writers or public, uh, you know, intellectuals or whatever are not also driven by the desire to be seen and recognized and have a large validated, validating following. Well, that's, uh, look, uh, I think journalism uh, in particular in terms of writing is uh, about 
writing things not just for the sake of writing them, but for having an impact and an influence in the conversation and in what ha- in political journalism and what happens in politics. I I don't I don't come at writing about politics as uh, a Republican or a Democrat or having a slant one way or the other. I don't myself believe that there's such a thing exactly as objective journalism. I think that there's fair journalism. We all have some viewpoint that we come at this with. Uh, and and we should all spend a lot of time in journalism striving to be fair. But you want, when you write things, for it to matter in the world and for people to read it and for there to be an effect of people reading it. Otherwise, it just ends up being like, uh, <laughs> I'll go a, love a little letter PG-13 to here. Well, I was going to say a masturbatory experience. <laughs> Um, so you went for the uh, cleaner, more poetic version of that, Ryan. <laughs> no, and, and and that was another theme that I picked up on in the book, which I think is is worth uh, everyone thinking about. What I found remarkable about Biden for a person who is, you know, uh, routinely criticized as being sort of gaff prone or or you know uh, sloppy, he really ran a campaign of pretty remarkable discipline. I, I was sort of thinking about it via the Rams New England Super Bowl. Where Belichick's like, I'm going to run the most. I'm going to I'm going to run the most boring offense in the history of football, uh, bec- because I'm playing against one of the most exciting offenses in the history of football, and and we're we're just gonna we're gonna, you know, sir, this is going to be a game of contrast. That the just at every step of the way, he was provoked, baited, set up for you know, a potential campaign ending mistake. And he remarkably didn't didn't make one. Um, and and well, I was, he made I was he made a bunch that. of mistakes. I mean, no, no, not I, that he didn't re- make, <laughs> but he didn't make any mistakes that cost him the election. Uh, by definition, we wouldn't be talking. That's I, true. Yeah. yeah, and look, I ran into somebody uh, last weekend whom I, I haven't seen. It's somebody who I don't know that well, um, but uh, because of the pandemic, I hadn't seen in a year and a half, and. Uh, and this is not somebody in journalism or in politics. And he said to me, it's a very proud Democrat. And he said to me, I remember you saying to me in the summer of 2019, the end of 2019, oh, Biden looks tired and he's uh, screwing up a lot. And hey, look, he's the president now. Yeah. And I said, and was sort of like rubbing my face in it. And I was like, well, no, I mean, like he was tired and screwing up a lot in those days. And that doesn't mean, uh, obviously, that he's not the president now, but there are a lot of things that fit together in this way to make him the nominee and the president that I don't think anybody would have been able to predict, right? To go back, when I turned in that proposal for this book in 2018, the proposal said, like, Joe Biden's probably going to run and he's probably going to be one of the leading candidates. We'll see whether it works out for him. So it wasn't, like, shocking to me that he would uh, do well. Uh, I did think that there was a reasonably good chance that someone else would come out ahead of him. Uh, And in fact, when you see the way it went down, where he was struggling, and uh, if not for Trump doing all the things that led to the first impeachment, would that that ended up benefiting Biden because everybody kind of uh, rallied around him. Would Biden have been the nominee without that? I don't know. Would Biden have been the nominee if there wasn't a real recoil from Bernie Sanders at the end, which uh, would not have happened probably with any of the other candidates in the race? I don't know. There are things there that really uh, fit together in this intricate puzzle, and that's what the book tries to to get at, like why why it worked out this way. 
uh, and it was not as obvious as like, hey, he was the two-term vice president, well-known, older white guy. Uh, of course, he was going to be the nominee. It, like, yes, uh, and it can seem like it was like the obvious conclusion and almost written in the stars, but it really wasn't at any point. And you think like this is a guy who came in fourth place in Iowa, and then followed it up by coming in fifth place in New Hampshire, right? Like, that's not a story that that usually leads to anything good happening in politics. Well, and that's kind of what I mean about discipline is that you could, I think if I was in that position, you know, your your response would be to overreact or to abandon mm-hmm. the plan. And there was a remarkable amount of discipline. You know, it's kind of a tortoise in the hare story. It's kind of a, you know, I have a hypothesis about the American electorate that runs counter to kind of what the polling says, that definitely runs counter to what Twitter says, that runs counter to the, you know, what's getting coverage in the media. But if I can just stick with this, you know, I think it's going to work. And, and there's the there's an element of, of that sort of plotting consistency and bet. You know, it's like he had a vision for the soul of America and he made a big bet on it. And for most of the campaign, it did not look like a good bet. And then it started kind of paying dividends. So it, 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 I, I was just struck by the, in, in sports, we call it like, oh, they stuck with the game plan, you yeah. know? And, and it, it seems like of all the candidates, he was kind of the only one that did it. Yeah, and look, he started saying that the expression "battle for the soul" comes from him, and he started saying it after Charlottesville because there, there was that uh, the Nazi march, yeah. and it, it did uh, hit for so many people as like, what is happening, right? And he uh, puts this. Uh, the, he's thinking about this book that John Meacham wrote called "The Soul of America," and then he says, "Okay, the battle for the soul," and he writes an article about it, and he's reading the article to people in draft form, and he's like starting to shout as he's reading it. <clears throat> and then I get into this whole process that he's going through in the book. And then he comes to the point of deciding to run. Uh, and he says it's a battle for the soul at the beginning. And his campaign uh, is doing polling and focus groups about this. And they are saying, like, people aren't really into this phrase, sir. <laughs> like, maybe use something else. Uh, and he refuses to. And, you know, I, I think it's important, like, because he won, this does seem like the right strategy. If he had lost, he would have seemed like he was being stubborn, right? Sure. By sure. doing this, right? So it's you know it's important like, to think about the history, not just in the the end result, right? But he keeps going at it and keeps going at it. And like, to go back to that interview we did in the beginning of February, uh, when I said to him, uh, so by the way, like there were a bunch of different titles that we had played around with uh, for this book. And uh, only maybe three days before the interview that I did with him at the end of January, we decided, okay, we're going to call it Battle for the Soul. It does really feel like that because of the riot, because I had just gone and covered the inauguration and how weird it was to have that behind these fences with the National Guard there. And And, and so I said to him, so, you know, we're going to call this book uh, Battle for the Soul. We just decided that a couple of days ago. So I guess I have, I should just thank you for coming up with that phrase and said it as sort of a, a little joke. And he said to me, yeah, you know, the difference between you and me, pal, is I actually believe it. 
Uh, <laughs> I loved that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and I laughed a little bit and I said, no, I think you actually may have been onto something. And part of that is that Biden, he is very much the guy that you see uh, uh, in public as uh, gregarious and warm. And But he also does have this very sarcastic sense of humor and a sense of like, no, I was right. You know, I was right about this. And he wanted to make sure that I felt that. Uh, and... Uh, and through the conversation, he ended up saying to me, yeah, you know, when I was talking about the battle for the soul, a, a lot of my uh, a lot of people working on the campaign said to me, stop talking about that stuff. Nobody really connects with that anymore. And I wanted to keep talking about it that way. And I think that this this goes to what I was saying earlier, that the presidency that he has is, is pretty different from the one that he imagined for himself. And now, like, it does feel like we're in this battle for the soul in a big deep way on many many different levels but that's not that's not something that any of us could have anticipated and so he ends up rising to a moment that wasn't there but that really is this moment that we're in and now we see whether he can actually do anything with that moment yeah you could argue that what great leaders do is they make the moment and and then to a certain extent the moment wasn't there and he was kind of skate he was skating to where the puck would be which is what yeah. great leaders do I, I have a line from General Mattis that I have on my wall. He says, you know, cynicism is cowardice. And there is a kind of an earnestness to Biden that I think does make him stand out in a world of a lot of cynicism, even even nihilism these days. Yeah. And I, I wrote an article in The Atlantic that published uh, this week where that gets into how he's handling talking about Trump as Trump continues to try to force himself much more onto the scene. And the Biden's approach, the White House's overall approach is to be a little bit dismissive of Trump to say he's not on the same level as the president of the United States. And he's like this crazy guy who... Same with the self-discipline. It's more self-discipline. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and and what that leads to sometimes, uh, and I can uh, verify this even with the reaction that I got to this article from reporters and politicians alike, is that people saying, like, does he not get it? Is he totally oblivious to what's going on? Uh, doesn't he know that he needs to get into this big fight? And Biden has this sense of the best way to de-escalate a fight is to not be in it. And yeah. he pulls himself out of the fight. Uh, and so – and that – seems to have, I think to his credit at this point, l kept the temperature lower than it might have been otherwise. The question, though, is does this end up repeating in a mostly parallel way what happened in 2015 and 2016, where people were for a long time pretty dismissive of Trump and, and what Trump was tapping into and not see that it is uh, very... Uh, compelling to a lot of Americans uh, and to underplay this uh, and not uh, not be ready for the fight that's really coming. There's a great book uh, you may have read, if, if you haven't, you should, and anyone listening should, called The Hidden Hand Presidency that's mostly about Eisenhower and McCarthy. And basically it sort of falls in line with what you're talking about in your article, which is that the president has to be above things. So Eisenhower never mentions McCarthy, uh, refuses hmm. to give him any oxygen, refuses to attack him directly. But, and we only find this out years later when the archives are, are started to be revealed, but worked quite Machiavellian 
to destroy him in secret through intermediaries. So I, I would agree that as long as the, the self-discipline and the outward control is matched by a sort of in, inner pragmatism and awareness of the urgency of the problem, the strategy can work well. If it's delusional or naive, uh, I'm going to ignore it and it will go away, then it's probably only going to get worse. I have not read that book, but that sounds like it should be on my reading list pretty quickly. Um, I will say that when I was reporting this story about Biden, I said to someone who uh, is one of his top advisors, I said, but like he's he's like reading the clips and watching what's happening on TV, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's reading the clips. Good, um, good. He does not watch as much TV by any measure as Donald Trump uh, did Thank or God. does. But um, but he is aware of what's going on. And what Biden would say to people is, you know, that was his son that. Uh, Donald Trump went after when he was uh, trying to drum up the Ukraine conspiracy stuff. Uh, you know that that's cutting pretty close to yes. him. That's his son whose emails uh, about being in in recovery and uh, you know and, uh, that that were hacked and put out in public. That that was his own presidency that the riot in the Capitol was meant to overturn. Like, he feels it pretty directly about himself. But there is this. Uh, and even sometimes in, in talking with him and getting deep into it with him, this place where it's not clear whether it is like a relentless optimism or uh, a uh, naivete or just in some ways, I think what I think it really draws from is his experience with grief uh, through his life and knowing that there is there is a way to handle this uh, when things go terribly wrong that doesn't always involve like screaming back at it. Uh, he he talks about one of the really like I've heard him say it so many times that it's like a complete. Uh, every time he says it, I start to be like, oh, he's doing this thing again as a you know yeah. jaded reporter. But he he will always say to people. Uh, when they're in, uh, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation or talking to like a group of mass shooting survivors, uh, he says, it's hard to believe it right now, but there will come a time where the memory of the person who was killed will um, bring a smile to your face and not just the tears that you're feeling now. And he said, you'll get there. Right. Uh, and you just have to believe me that that's coming. And you know, that grief is so riven through him that uh, from the experience of his wife and baby daughter being killed in 1972 and, uh, and his son dying in, in 2015 and this, uh, what his, one of his best friends, Ted Kaufman says to me in the book that, uh, Biden is both the, the luckiest and unluckiest person that he's ever known, right. That he goes back and forth between this and this, I guess, really plugs into stoicism here. Um, yes. <laughs> Um, that you know that car crash that kills his wife and baby daughter and puts his two sons in the hospital happens when he's in Washington as the youngest senator ever elected uh, and in this great high and he gets pulled down that he goes up uh, to uh, running for president in 1988 and it seems like things are going great and uh, and then 
he gets himself into a plagiarism scandal because he's talking off the cuff so much uh, that he talks himself into trouble. Uh, and he has to pull out. And then he has brain aneurysm, to, and it, the last rites are delivered to him. That's how bad things were. That it, like It's just constant back and forth with him. And then, so I think that part of what he's facing now when he looks at what's ahead for the country is thinking like, how do we keep this on an even keel? And how do I use my own personal experience of thinking about that to inform how I lead the country? Yeah. In my book, The Obstacle is the Way, I I use this great book called Lincoln's Melancholy as a source, which everyone should read. But it's, it's about, you know, sort of Lincoln's crippling battle with depression for most of his life and how this sets him up for this unique moment that he ends up occupying in history. And I do think there is an element to that of Biden and his story, which is that it it forges a temperament that is both uniquely suited to the times, but also very much needed to the times. Because I you could argue that, you know, we're all addicted to social media. We are all trapped in this outrage cycle. Having a president as Trump was, politics aside, who was very much the apotheosis of that, you know, mm-hmm. escalated it and took us to a much worse place culturally. Again, policies aside, it, I am somewhat hopeful that the next four years can perhaps, br- you know, break us from our, you know, politics as the dominant cultural medium of entertainment mentality that we're in and the, the sort of, uh, you know, always following, always responding cycle. Um, we do have a president whose temperament would, we would all be happier if we had a bit more of that temperament as opposed to the watch five hours of Fox News in the evening and then tweet about it mentality. Yeah, Michael Bennett, who's one of the senators from Colorado and who ran for president, as he himself will say, in a way that almost no one was aware of, uh, including, I remember when he was getting into the race, I was in New Hampshire with uh, one of his fellow candidates. And I said, oh, so I'm going over to see Michael Bennett. And I won't tell you which one this was, but this candidate said to me, oh, is he running too? (laughs) (laughs) But Bennett, uh, in the summer of 2019, had tweeted this line that said something like, you know, if I'm president, uh, I promise you'll be able to go two weeks without ever thinking about me. And um, his campaign didn't do very well, but that that sensibility, I do think, connected with a lot of people, um, and uh, especially during the pandemic, where inevitably we were all, especially last fall, uh, thinking every day about what we were all going through and what the government, how the government and politics was failing us, right, uh, and that we couldn't ever escape it because we couldn't escape our homes, right, and Biden uh, was essentially saying to people like, I'll just take care of it, right? That was his pitch. I'll be, I'm not going to be that exciting. You're not going to get any soap opera level uh, palace intrigue stories out of me. Uh, I'm telling you right now, uh, I've tried to report on some of the stuff that the, the conversations are never that interesting when Joe Biden is involved in them as compared to the Donald Trump ones. They don't go in crazy ways. Uh, and, and Biden made that pitch to the country and I don't know if uh, without the pandemic, he would have been as successful making that kind of a pitch. But with the pandemic, people did seem to feel like, okay, that's um, that seems reasonable to me. That's the kind of government, that's the kind of politics that uh, that I want more of. And there were 
a lot of votes that Joe Biden got that were for him, but there were also a lot of votes that Biden got that were against Trump and people saying we don't want the Trump way of doing things anymore. So last last question, and then I'll let you go, uh, and I'll just go back to reading your writing. But um, what do you feel like? What do you feel like ha- having followed four years of a campaign, and then now we're about to watch another one start? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it was so early. <laughs> but um, what have you seen as far as how the sausage gets made that perhaps your you, that your average person doesn't know? that knowing might save them time, save them anxiety, save them outrage? Like, what do you feel like as a reporter you understand about how media, particularly about politics, gets made that that perhaps impacts how you read, see the news, your perception of whether the world's, you know, teetering on the edge of destruction or, you know, if, if we're just getting a bit more worked up than we need to be? Do you, do you know what I mean? Um. Yeah, I think it's sort of two questions. I think we should be pretty worked up about what's going on in politics in this country. Uh, but the 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 main insight that I try to bring to every article that I write and this book, I think you see it throughout, is that these are human beings. And they're not characters in a play uh, or in a movie. Uh, and when you start to think of them in that way, uh, as people, you get such a different understanding of how they do things well, how they screw things up, wh- what their intentions are. A lot of this book, in writing it, felt to me like I was writing a novel, um, though it's all true. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but that's because I, I got to know these people really well and cover them a lot and talk to a lot of people about them. And when you see the way that they struggle with decisions or the way that when uh, something goes really well, what it is that's driving it. And it's not this like big mythical clashes like out of a Marvel movie or something uh, that it gives you an understanding of what's going on, right? Like there's a lot in, uh, there's a chapter in the book about that first famous debate between Biden and Harris when she uh, hit him over busing uh, and uh, blew up and then she ended up having her own problems because of it. Uh, But part of what's sketched out in there is why she uh, needed to do that, why she felt she needed to do that because she needed to raise money and she needed to raise her profile, but also how uh, they talked through the specific ways of making the attack, how she was uncomfortable about different parts of it, why Biden reacted in the way that he did. And you have to understand that. And then you understand that these people are all fallible. Um, And they are all uh, fallible, not just in like the big way, but like maybe something goes wrong in a way that reverberates and ripples through government and politics because someone like didn't really sleep well one day. (laughs) That's possible. That stuff happens sometimes, right? Where one, you know, we're talking about the Hillary Clinton basket of deplorables line. I don't know whether she had had like a bad day that day or was like particularly exhausted, but it could be that. And that ends up haunting her whole campaign. And and so when I look at this, uh, what I uh, what's ahead of us now, and think about the people who want to be part of the uh, 
the political leadership of what that'll be, whether uh, the Republicans who are going to start running for president or uh, the Democrats who are in office now. It's saying, like, how do you deal with this stuff? How do you – and there, to feel like – I said to a, one of the members of the uh, House leadership, um, a guy named Hakeem Jeffries, who uh, I'll have a story about shortly, a, a guy who's uh, – probably going to be the next Speaker of the House uh, once Nancy Pelosi retires, whenever that day comes. Uh, and I said to him, do you feel the burden of, like, thinking if you guys screw up the midterm elections, like, that's a big problem for a long time for the Democratic Party, and in your minds, a big problem for, like, democracy itself? And that question isn't just about getting the big speechification from him about, you know, ideals, but really how that hits this guy who is a human being and goes home and uh, has to talk to his kids about what's going on. and uh, Right, the kicker and, that blew the field goal. Right, like it's real. And, it's, and, 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 and when you put these people uh, at a reserve, then I think you both don't give them enough credit and also kind of give them too much credit because you let them get away with things uh, that uh, were like they're uh, as if it's not real and affecting people's lives. But stuff affects people's lives. What happens with the, the bills that are going on in Congress? The, the, you know, the, you sort of bounce around these enormous numbers, trillions of dollars in an infrastructure bill. Will it be three and a half trillion or four and a half trillion? But, you know, <laughs> that's money that... <laughs> Um, the difference of a million dollars uh, in uh, one project will could be enormous for a specific community or for somebody's lives. And you think about it in that way and how they're all processing it. It's really, uh, I, I think that the, 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 the failure of politics and the failure of political journalism often is to let things get too divorced from how it actually affects all of our lives um, because it does in big ways, big and small. Yeah. Maybe that's Biden uh, wearing off on you. The idea of some empathy <laughs> and, uh, and, and thinking about what people are going through because everyone is going through something. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I guess, Ryan, you think I was like a bad person before I <laughs> spent some time around politicians, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I, th- it's not just Biden. I think it's, it, it is, the the politicians who think about things in that way are the ones that we should all want to have uh, leading things. It doesn't mean that they're all going to agree on the solution to get there. But the politicians who only think like, wow, how do we you know keep the Democrats in the majority in twenty twenty two, or how do we win the Senate back for the Republicans? You know, like that is not. A good way of going about things. No, it's it's a um, shitty, it's a shitty way to be a person. But it's I think it's also historically not been a particularly great strategy. You know, like that's- yeah, and 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 you look at the last I would say twenty ish years in American politics, and it has been this just sort of like tug and war or tug of war back and forth of who's going to be in power without thinking about like well what about all these things that are rotting under the surface and again i think donald trump uh is the manifestation in voters minds of people saying like we want you to do something yeah well, you know and and i sketch uh, in the book i write about how like a lot of what was going on in 2016 and i think continued to go on through the, his presidency and in 2020 is people saying like 
I'm getting fucked. I, and I, I can't pay my mortgage. I can't, I'm working harder than I ever worked. I'm working harder than my parents worked. I, I can't pay for my kids to go to college. It seems like other people are doing well. It seems like uh, we had a, the a Wall Street crash and yet still uh, the big bonuses for all the big banks and I'm getting fucked and why won't anyone do something for me? And Donald Trump's strength was saying, I know you're getting fucked and I'm angry about it too. And that that the irony that that was coming from a guy who was born into wealth and lives in literally a gold covered <laughs> could not tower care, could not care less about anyone other than himself. Yes. Right. Like, but he was speaking to that anger, and I think that then what was important again in in twenty twenty is that Biden figured out a way to speak to people's anger that they were getting fucked in the pandemic and that they were getting and that they had turned to Trump to try to change things and they were still kind of getting fucked. It didn't change their lives and Biden saying, "Look, I can I, I, I think we can try to get government to work again and I can do something for you." And uh, and people say like, "Okay, maybe we do that. Maybe we go to this guy who has more experience than like literally anyone else who's ever been president, right?" And and Americans, if you go in the history of American politics, uh, you, it it is almost uh, impossible to find an example of somebody who had more experience winning over somebody who had less experience. The exceptions are like George H.W. Bush and Thomas Jefferson, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so Biden coming and, and making that argument in a way that really worked uh, is a reflection of just how uh, harried people were by what they were going through and thinking like, okay, like maybe we need something calmer and more experienced and uh, maybe that's the way to do something. But Biden now, you see what he's talking about all the time where he says democracy is dependent on us showing that government can work. This is not a small thing. This is not just about whether people's like taxes go up or down or whatever. This is something much bigger that we should all hopefully be able to have faith that our government does something, whatever it may be. And I'm not sure that that message is uh, translated so well to a lot of members of Congress, at least so far. No, I love it. I loved the book and uh, I'm so glad we got connected and uh, I can't wait. Uh, actually, I would say I can't wait for the next book, but I hope that <laughs> the upcoming election is so boring that uh, it does not warrant another book. So that, that's just my that's just my <laughs> my view as a citizen. But as a, as a fan, I do I do hope it comes along. I, uh, I I don't think that we're heading into a super boring period in American politics. Um, that being said, I don't have uh, I, I'm not yet at work on another book. But who knows what what will come? I, I think that there will. Uh, the 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 joke is that, right, that what's good for journalism is often what's not good for the country and vice versa. Yeah, may uh, you live in interesting <laughs> times. Um, it, it, and and I think that there will be uh, still a lot of journalism to do. So you can read into that what you will. <laughs> I, I, I will. Uh, I appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We just crossed more than 50 million downloads with the Daily Stoke podcast. Thanks to you. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share it with your friends. Send an episode you liked. If you liked today's episode, send it to someone you know. We're always trying to reach more people and we appreciate it. Thank you for helping us keep the lights on here at Daily Stoic.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.